Coming up on this edition of the Golf Digest podcast, we discuss some encouraging news concerning the PGA Tour schedule and have a chat with rising South African star Eric Van Royen. My God, my swing feels like an unfolded lawn chair. Well, why do they even have one if you're not supposed to hit it there? Because it's fun. We're having fun. What is this, Coastal? Mine's off the rack. I wish Tiger Woods was here to help me with this. We'll do it live. Welcome back to the Golf Digest podcast. I'm Alex Myers. Today I'm joined by Sam Wyman, Daniel Rappaport. We are still in quarantine, obviously, uh, but we finally have some pretty good or at least exciting news potentially uh, regarding golf. We'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to a chat with rising South African tour star Eric Van Royen. Uh, who was making a bit of a name for himself before play stopped. He's also quite the guitarist, as we've learned uh, through his Instagram channel. But um, anyway, let's start first with the exciting news. We, you know, we'd had some speculation. Uh, obviously, our Brian Wacker and uh, Joel Beal have been really all over this schedule story and breaking news. But the PGA Tour finally came out, and uh, the plan is to restart in June – June 11th through June 14th at the Charles Schwab Cup Championship, a.k.a. Colonial. Uh, Dan, Sam, what are we thinking here? Are we getting our hopes up, uh, or is it just kind of nice to uh, at least have some sort of date on the schedule? I think it's nice to have some sort of date on the schedule, and I think you have to give the PGA Tour some level of, of credit for kind of sticking their neck out and doing this because they knew that they're the first sports league that's released anything even right. before the schedule. Um, and I think it is still very much so a best case scenario. This is the absolute best case. And let's also keep in mind that at the Players Championship, Jay Monahan had a press conference where he announced that there was going to be they were going to continue playing the Players Championship and the next events just with no fans. And then I think it was ten hours later, everything was canceled. So everything can still move um, at a very quick pace. But it, it is something to look forward to. And I, I do want to say, I don't think the tour would do this without having some level of con They're not stupid, right? They're not going to do this if they think there's no chance it happens. So they believe they can really get their access and their hands on a, on a bunch of tests. And that's the only reason why they would put this out. Well, that's the thing, though. You mentioned the tests. I mean, and obviously, Sam, they're going to need to do a lot of testing um, and continued testing. It's not just, oh, everybody's clean. Let's come back. I mean, you, you just you can't do that. So that seems like that's going to be a, a, a potential issue. But to Dan's point, they probably, they must be pretty confident they're, they're able to do this. However, if anyone tests positive at any point, what then happens? And, you know, that throws a wrench in, into everything well, as well. Yeah. I mean, there's so many variables to consider. I think to the first point about, should we be optimistic or encouraged? I think the fact that they're talking about June uh, and, you know, June 11th is the first round date. Uh, makes it more tenable and reasonable than if we're talking about next month. And, yes. and so much of it hinges on testing. Everything you read beyond golf and pro sports about testing, right. you know, uh, by the end of the month, they need, by the end of May, they need to get to X. And so all of the plans that the PGA Tour has in place revolve around being able to test sufficiently. And uh, presumably it's testing players before they leave their home and making sure they're clean before they get there. And then maybe, I, I don't know this for a fact, because I know there's a lot of different scenarios being discussed and then potentially testing them again once they get there. Um, so again, right now, given all the problems we're having with testing around the country, that seems very ambitious, but you know, there's certainly a concerted effort across the board, state governments, federal government, 
uh, in ramping up testing significantly over these next six weeks. So you hope, you hope it makes sense. We're talking about events without fans. So certainly you're minimizing yeah. some risk, not all the risk. And uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that, you know, it, it can happen and, and God willing, um, you know, the, this crisis has reached a, a level where it's certainly not over by any means, but feel people feel like uh, we're, we're, you know, we're forging forward in a positive direction. Yeah. And I think to, to Sam's point about <clears throat> it's June, it's not next month. This, it feels like we've been in this thing for forever, but the players championship was canceled. I think it was March 15th. So it's been basically a month. So if you take all that time that we've been in lockdown and we have double that time until this happens, right. we're not saying that it's going to be over by any stretch, but two months is a long time. A lot of things can change between now and then. Two months is a long time, especially like you said, Dan, it does see, it seems like we've been doing this for months already. So you're right. It is a long time. That being said, I, I saw one figure and again, who knows? I mean, it's, it's very hard to figure this out, but if all these events happened and they were able to test as much as they want to, with caddies and players and everybody else, um, they'd probably need about a million tests was a number that I saw. And there've only yeah. been 4 million tests done so far. Yeah. In the I heard though, it's a long way to go. That number is that number with, uh, that was like, I, I had heard from some guys who would know this sort of thing. That was kind of an initial um, hope plan that they could get that many tests. Obviously that doesn't seem rational. That would be if they were testing people every day. But right. the latest that I've heard is that they're, they're trying to do this on a weekly basis, which makes okay. it a little bit more manageable. But still, we're talking thousands of tests per week because you're going to do it each day, I assume, uh, each round probably for 150 players plus their caddies plus... I don't think... Well, again, <laughs> I'm, I'm literally passing along bad information, but yeah. I don't think they're doing it every round. The thing okay. would be uh, you leave your home. Before you leave your home in Florida or wherever to go to this event, you get gotcha. tested. Then you're, okay. then you're presumably cleared, hopefully cleared. Then you get to the on-site... Uh, maybe you're tested again at that point, uh, and then that, and then um, presumably it's a somewhat controlled environment of where guys are, where they're staying, and at that point you're you're playing, and then you you start the process again for the following week's tournament. I don't think it's every round of rehab. Again, don't don't quote me on that, yeah. even though we're saying this on a podcast and it could be, but that's that's my understanding. That's but that's one of the biggest challenges. We saw the MLB's proposed plan and the NBA's proposed plan of maybe having all these guys stay in the same hotel to try and make it as a right. environment as possible. That's not how it works on the PGA Tour usually. You know, MLB teams, NBA teams, they all stay together and they're used right. to that in some capacity. PGA Tour guys, some of them drive their own freaking RVs to every tournament. A lot of guys, you know, the richer guys, rent houses every week. So it would be very interesting if you try to tell these guys, hey, uh, we all have rooms for you in the Holiday Inn. Let's see how that works. <laughs> but, th but this is like, I think I've said this on this podcast. I've definitely said it, um, you know, on just different conversations with other people and just talking about stories in general, which is everyone needs to stop putting this through the prism of the way things mm -hmm. usually are. You have to sure. put it through the, what you're weighing this against is having no golf. There will be right. no golf unless you do X. And what are those things that will allow you to have some level of, of golf with, you know, competitive integrity. And if, and if, if people are going to balk at that, well then don't play because this is, you know, this is the reality we're dealing with. And I, I would imagine all these guys want to play golf that matters in a safe environment. And this is what the, these are the parameters the tour are kind of outlining. Yeah. And that's, you know, people are nitpicking the schedule now and they're saying, and it is weird, don't get me wrong, but that only one major would be this season, the, uh, the PJ Championship in August, and then there would be six majors next season. But it's like, who cares? We just want to get as much done as possible, obviously. But yeah, again, the key thing here, and at least uh, as this proposal outlines, that the first four events at least would have no fans. Mm -hmm. And that's really the key with all this, because 
if you remember, obviously, Sam's, I mean, uh, Dan, going back to when Jay Monahan made his comments while the Players' Championship was unfolding, it was kind of like, well, we're in a good position because golf is outdoors, it's spread out. But then you cut to, you know, the gallery behind a green and thousands of fans are packed in. Mm-hmm. So that's really the issue. And, um, you know, as long as you get the fans out of the mix, um, I think you have a chance because then you're starting with this 150 or so level of people you have to test. Now, that being said, if the other tours are obviously going to open up as well, and Dan, I wanted to ask you about the Corn Ferry Tour in, in particular, because I know this might really affect them. You're going to have to test there as well. And then there's the whole, uh, and this is what I want to ask you, Dan, about the whole earning your tour card for next year, either on the Corn Ferry Tour or moving your way up to the PGA Tour. It seems like there's a lot up in the air right now. Yeah, it's a kind of a mess is, is the probably the most accurate word. Um, what, it has trickle-down effects. So one right. of the main things that people haven't been talking about is, okay, so the PJ Tour season has been condensed majorly, right? I mean, it's all happening in the, in the end of summer and you have all these huge events. So guys who normally wouldn't play in Colonial or John Deere, everyone's going to play in those events. So right. those guys playing in those events means guys with lower priority level aren't going to get into those events. Right. So those guys have a, a, a plausible argument with the tour that I didn't have a fair chance to keep my card because normally last year, you know, the guys got to play 27 events and this year I only got to play 18 because that's all I was allowed to get into. So the PJ tour, if, if there's a, a scenario, which the, the lower level PJ tour players are complaining, they're going to protect them and prioritize them over the corn fairy guys. So mm-hmm. on the call, it was communicated that it's, it seems like the tour is considering a sort of hybrid scenario where Guys, nobody loses all of their playing privileges this year because it's not a big enough sample size, whatever they decide that to be. So if that happens, then the Corn Ferry guys, they don't get to get their cards. And then there's that goes all the way down the level. So mm-hmm. if the Corn Ferry yeah. guys who aren't getting their cards, then is there a Q school this year? Because Q school fills out a, you know, a lot of the back right. end of the Corn Ferry tour. What happens with the McKenzie tour guys, Latino America tour guys? And then also even you know, Eric Van Royen, who's, who's our guest this week, and our conversation was before coronavirus habits. We didn't even talk about it, but he's trying to get his, his card through the uh, non-member points list. Mm. No, he doesn't know if that's going to happen anymore. He doesn't know if he's still going to get into tournaments being in the top 50. So no one has any idea what they're going to honor, what the eligibility rules are going to be. And there's a, a, a very large possibility that the corn Ferry tour doesn't give the top 25 finishers on the list. PJ tour status here. And that's for the guys who are playing super well. We, you know, yeah. it's just a really, really brutal situation. And they're not sure if they're going to roll it into next season or how they're going to handle it. But and, and, and the last thing I'll say, I know I'm rambling on a bit here about the Corn Ferry Tour, but the last thing I'll say is the PGA Tour will go to all these measures to get the tests and stuff for the PGA Tour because they can put that on TV. The Corn Ferry Tour, they're not going to do that. It, it's just, it's a logistical nightmare and they don't, it, there's not as high of, of a payoff. So it's, it's not a great situation for the Corn Ferry Tour guys right now. Yeah, I mean, if this tour schedule plays out, we would still wind up seeing 36 PGA Tour events in this season, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. Um, but it's usually – it was supposed to be 49. And then to your point, Dan, you're going to have most of the best players actually taking up those spots. So mm-hmm. it's it, – it, right, the, the lesser player has less of a chance to play because everybody's going to want to play in a lot of tournaments when they come well, back. You know, this, this whole conversation is sort of mirrors a larger conversation that's happening – overall in this country, which is that, um, you know, you have a, a big segment of society that um, is, you know, basically able to make decisions based on their safety and are they going to be able to still do their jobs safely. And then you have a segment of society who are probably can't do their job as safely, but still need to do it 
for right. a variety of reasons. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is what's going to happen, but think about it for a second. PGA tour players going to be tested out, you know, left and right, be entirely safe. Are we creating a scenario? Maybe not a, the corner ferry tour, but lower tours where it's like, you know, if you guys want to play, play, you know, you're going to risk it. You know, it's like, right. this is the, this is the reality we're in right now. And it's, it's a scary time for those reasons. Like the trickle down of all this is, is staggering. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's seen that the outlaw tour is happening in Arizona and they're basically saying, you know, you play at your own risk. And at a certain extent, these guys who don't have the financial security, the PJ tour players, they have to do that. And Alex, to your, to your point about 36 events, that is a ton of events, right. but the current system that's in place is predicated on 49 events. Right. It's predicated on guys at lower level getting into X amount of events. And there's so many things that are thrown out of whack. Right. Cause of, of those 49, there's a ton that the lower guys don't get in the WGCs, the invitationals. Um, so yeah, you know, you mentioned the outlaw tour. I did want to mention Alex Cheka, a PGA tour winner playing on the outlaw tour last week and winning. This is a guy who has about, it's tough to figure out with, with, cause he's got his Euro tour. Uh, he's won four times in the Euro tour. He's won on the PGA tour, but let's just say he's won about $20 million in his career. Uh, he's almost 50. He wins a $5,000 check on the outlaw tour. Uh, for, you know, I mean, he's a ringer in one sense, but also, I mean, those guys are good players too. So uh, I don't know. What do you think about that, Dan, as someone I, who – I just want to know if he fist pumped on the 18th green. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, sure what, he did. Was he pumped? Was he pumped? I mean, a, a win is a win, right? You beat your buddy, you're still pumped. So There's some good players out there. Uh, he shot a 64 in the final round. And, uh, you know, I, I guess he's keeping sharp. Uh, he, he played most recently at the uh, Puerto Rico Open, which is actually – the event that he won on the PJ tour and he'd finished, I think he finished T 60th and he won $6,600. So is, is he part of the Puerto Rico curse? Does he only have he one? He oh is. my goodness. Yeah. The best, the so he's best. one of the That's guys. Amazing. That's right. But uh, he's keeping his game sharp, I guess, for when he turns 50, especially. Um, uh, yeah. So we mentioned Eric Van Royen, obviously. And uh, I wanted to ask you, Dan, cause you were on this call with, with the tour. There is a question about international players, how they're going to get around. Uh, with some of these these bands and then also in general is media even going to be able allowed or what media is going to be allowed because obviously the plan is to sort of broadcast these but you know what what sense did you get from those calls regarding uh, on those topics as far as the international players the tour really doesn't know um, and that might sound harsh but that was my takeaway from the call there's I think they said there's 25 players at least and at least 35 caddies right now that are outside the U.S that have just chosen to do this lockdown outside of the U.S., even if they might have a, a place here. And you, you'd think that the tour would have some sort of information. Maybe they have a guarantee that those guys would be let back in the country on some sort of visa, or I don't know if they charter them or whatever it is. But they basically said, yeah, we're not sure. We'll see how that plays out. Um, so I know there are a couple of international players who are, are not very happy about that policy, just not giving them any sort of outline on what to do. They don't know if they should try and get back into the country now, if they should try and go back later. So another huge question mark. Um, and me, as far as media goes, I feel like yes, because just because of the a thousand person number, which has kind of been thrown out there, mm -hmm. you know, media, like thousand people is a lot of people. So I, I think that media would be built into that a thousand number, but they get, again, they said they're not sure. They said they, they want us to be there. They would hope that we can be there, but they stopped short of offering any sort of guarantee. Now, now Sam, you'd said, we got to stop comparing this to normal times. That being said, and I know, I think I know how you feel on this. The question now has come up, what if the Ryder Cup in particular, and that is still scheduled for the end of September, what mm -hmm. if there were to be a Ryder Cup without fans? And I think you said it would not, it wouldn't be good. So uh, yeah, well, that's where I draw the line. I mean, okay. one is, one is uh, you know, a, a, a 
a tour that everyone counts on, you know, as a, it's a, there's a whole machine in place for a PGA tour. So, so there's an incentive there to get that going in some form. So, um, and let's be honest, the PGA tour certainly uh, thrives on having fans, but it's not essential to pull off a tournament. The Ryder cup is, is first of all, in, by the definition, it's an exhibition. Right. Second of all, there's a precedent with moving it. So you don't have to have it this year. And third of all, it is very much a, a an event that is depends on a really you know rowdy environment with fans. And so, the, you know, there's no reason to force, in my view, to force a Ryder Cup into this year when so much of its identity is derived from the atmosphere of, of fans. Um, so just, you know, let's push it back here when we're hopefully in a much safer place and have a, you know, have a really wild time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. And, and we're talking about something that's five months off. So again, hopefully it can happen as planned and everything else. But I'm, I'm with you, Sam. I mean, obviously that first tee at a Ryder Cup uh, is pretty special. And, you know, I, I know certain people complain the crowds get a little too rowdy, a little too partisan, this or that. But that's that's part of the charm of the event. Um, and, and, you know, the fans do get really into it, obviously. Well, also, I mean, yeah. think about, think about uh, you know, all, everything you've read about how arena settings are really bad for mm-hmm. this, you know, f- for this virus and that it's something you really want to avoid. Well, a regular golf tournament, especially the colonial in May or June, uh, it's pretty spread out. You have 156 players, people are all over the place, obviously more people around 18 than anywhere else, mm-hmm. but you can manage the flow of people. The Ryder cup, when there are, how many matches are going on at once, four matches four. going on at once, yeah. right? There's no avoiding, you know, Huge large yeah. grandstands of people packed in. And so if, if that, if that dynamic is at all uh, suspect, then I would avoid it altogether. In addition with the Ryder Cup, you mentioned Colonial or the Heritage. Those tournaments, the fans are coming from the surrounding areas. The Ryder Cup is, by its very nature, an international event. Mm-hmm. Right? And you have people who are flying in across oceans to come to this. And, you know, it is five months away, but ostensibly the, the whole tracing aspect, where you've been, who you've talked to, what kind of that's still going to be uh, relevant. And it's, it's so much harder to account for that when you have an international competition. And that's, I think, part of the Olympics thing was, you know, not just the virus aside, but just the people coming from all different areas adds so many different variables. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, and I'm almost surprised that there hasn't been more talk about moving that one, just because, like you said, Sam, there is precedence as well. Um, all right, well, anyway, one guy who's not going to play in a Ryder Cup because he's from South Africa, but uh, he will hopefully, we think, probably play on a President's Cup team uh, in the near future is Eric Van Royen from South Africa. Uh, Dan, I know you, you talked to him, this must seem like years ago at this point, uh, at the players, but uh, you had a nice chat. Uh, tell us a little about uh, this young man. Yeah, so he finished third in Mexico. I think that was kind of his uh, – yeah. he was near the lead the first three days. He's kind of been known as the joggers guy because he's yeah. very joggers. But now he's a really cool guy. He's, he's 30 years old, around 30. He actually went to Minnesota. Um, and he married a, a woman from uh, from the U.S. So he's got that going. A Big Ten guy like myself, and uh, yeah, just I think he's a future star. He's a, you know beautiful swing. He played really well at Bethpage and uh, the PGA. He's he's shown out well when he's played and gotten into these big events. And uh, he very much wants to play on the PGA Tour. Great at guitar, as you mentioned. So there, there's a lot there. He's a, a really chill guy with a, a silky South African accent. So if, if nothing else, you can listen just just for that. <laughs> all right, well, awesome. Well, all right, have a listen to our chat with Eric Van Royen. I'm joined here by Eric Van Royen, uh, world number 42. That's it. That's right. Does it feel good? You feel like the number 42, uh, 42nd best golfer in the world? I'd like to say I feel a bit better than that. So <laughs> there let's it is. get that number a little smaller. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> so uh, it's the Monday of the Players' Championship. We're, uh, we're here at TPC Sawgrass. 
we were just chatting. This is a this is quite a big production. The chain smokers yesterday. You yeah. got every uh, every shot live this week. You've come a long way from uh, just a few years ago playing Absolutely. on the Sunshine Tour. Absolutely, things have changed. Um, it's it's really cool to be here. Um, it's pretty eye opening to see how big it really is. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just I'm excited. Good. Um, so I guess we'll start at the beginning. Uh, you grew up in, in Cape Town, is that right? I was born in Cape born Town. Born in Cape Town. Um, we moved around quite a lot as a kid. Um, spent four years in Cape Town. Obviously, don't remember much of it. What did your your dad work, move with work? Or? Yeah, he moved with work. So from Cape Town, he then went about to, on to get his MBA. So we moved to Pretoria, which is near Johannesburg, mm-hmm. big cities. Um, I was there. For, we were there till I was 13, and we moved down near the coast. Um, town called Oetswering. Don't worry about the pronunciation yeah. of that. I know like a few towns in South Africa, A, because I've been there, and B, the World Cup. Yeah, like I remember right. there were games in Pretoria. Right, there were so. games in Pretoria. Um, so I spent you know part of my life there and then moved to a town called Oetswering. It was near George. Um, fan courts got a ton of golf courses in George. Um, so I played most of my golf down there when I was about 13, 14 is when we moved. So that's kind of when, when I started playing golf more seriously. Did you grow up playing other sports, soccer yeah, or whatever it was? Um, no soccer, but played rugby, cricket, a mm-hmm. um, little bit of tennis for fun, stuff like that, track and field. Um, you know, we sports are kind of seasonal, kind of similar to here back yeah. in South Africa. So rugby was a, was a winter sport, cricket was a summer sport, track and field was a little bit of both. So. But it wasn't like you were one of these kids who, since they were 12 years old, was traveling the world playing not know, at all. No, not at all. You know, Dylan Fratelli came over, did some tournaments down here, you know, in the US, won World Juniors when he was 17, mm-hmm. I think. I never did any of that. So um, just played back home, played the junior circuit down there kind of just went from there yeah came over to the u.s for college and now we're here i guess now we're here so <laughs> i imagine you grew up there's some some pretty good south african players when you yeah when you grew up uh retief goose and ernie Ells watching the, them on tv yeah i Kimi. remember yeah. My, my buddies and i we used to watch uh on youtube this is the early days of youtube there were these uh this series called what's in my bag sure and there was retief goose and we always used to say uh yeah my pitching wedge and, pitching uh, wedge. <laughs> de- and he used to go yeah uh, depending on weather conditions, and we used to do we used to do that South African funny. accents. That's really all day. funny. So I'm wondering if those were your guys growing up. Those are my guys. Yeah, Ernie, um, Ernie's still got a quite a thick accent. Uh, Gracie's got a thick accent. The thief, obviously. So it's, it's quite funny that you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, and so obviously you must have had some success if if the American colleges came coming, but. Minnesota doesn't seem like the most natural destination for a kid from South Africa. How did that come to be? What did you know about Minnesota before? Nothing. Yeah. Um, I hardly knew where it was on the map, <laughs> so I had to look it up. Um, but yeah, the coach at the time, Brad James, was from Australia. He he recruited me. I went for my visit. Um, and I fell in love with the place. Look, I'm guessing you didn't you didn't was, go in the winter. No, my visit was was it like end of May. Um, so the university was shut shut down. There was nobody there on the yeah. campus, but it was beautiful. Um, kind of found in love with the place then and there. So yeah. And you liked your time in the Big Ten. I was telling you earlier. Right. I went to Northwestern, so also Big Ten. And I feel like you know you hear a lot about the Pac-12, the SEC golf. I was looking at the old all Big Twelve or Big Ten teams. We got some representatives here. Tyler Duncan is here. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Peters isn't here, but Adam Shank and you. There right. were some good players when you were there. Absolutely. Um, good level of competition. Were you? Were it you was pleased? very good. You know, um, Thomas Peters won nationals. I think at Riviera, my, my I think, junior right? or my senior year or whatever it was. Um, 
Thomas Dietrich is playing in the European Tour. So a um, few of the guys really went out and they're busy making a name for themselves. Right. So you had some success there. I think you were all Big Ten a couple years, mm-hmm. um, graduated in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you went back home. I'm yeah. curious about that decision. You know, instead, I don't know if maybe you tried to play Q school no, here. No, I did not. Yeah, why, why did you decide to go back home right after that? Were you homesick? Um, did you feel like it gave you the best chance? I wasn't too homesick. Um, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, yeah. was here. I, I would have loved to stay here. You met her at Minnesota? Yeah, I met her at Minnesota. Um, so, I, you know, I'm fortunate I get to go back quite often. So, I love Minneapolis as a city. Um but my dad kind of persuaded me to, to, to go back home and, and start on the Sunshine Tour. Um, you know, looking back, if I'm honest, uh, my game definitely wasn't in the shape that it is now mm-hmm. to, to be able to compete on, on the PGA Tour. Um, obviously, I wish it was, but it just wasn't. Um, and what the Sunshine Tour offered was, you know, obviously I'd be home. But then at the same time, um, we had six co-sanctioned events with Europe at the time. So I knew that, okay, I'm going to be competing at a high level, which is what I wanted. Um, I really didn't want to go do the mini tour scene here in the U.S. Um, just too much of a grind. Just, I don't know if it, if you really get anywhere. Um, all you've kind of got to really judge yourself on is Q school. And this is my opinion. And, and if Q school is kind of make it or break it, However, it's one tournament basically, one tournament, and yeah. if you don't make it, sorry, dude, you you back at whatever mini tour you're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have friends doing that, and they're phenomenal players. Yeah, um, it's the the margins are just so incredibly thin. People it's one good week. People don't realize, and it. I think one of the things people don't realize is, at least for me, it seems the hardest part is getting your card. I mean, yes, it's yeah. hard to keep your card, but. Absolutely. The difference between a guy who's, I don't know, 110th on the money list in the FedEx or win the FedEx Cup and the guy who's 50th on the Corn Ferry Tour. It's not much, man. It's not the much. The margins are so small, and, and that's what people don't really see. Um, and, and that's the reason why I like going back to the Sunshine Tour because it gave you a whole season of tournaments to play. You get a world ranking. Um, you've got six European Tour events that you could play at the time. So I could see myself building my career and seeing that progress and being able to really um, evaluate where my game's at. Um, and I've kind of ticked all the boxes. You know, I've, I've played well there. I went to Europe. I played well there. Um, I'm here now. I'm, I'm playing well. Mm-hmm. I'd love to get a win here um, whenever that might be. So um, as opposed to some of my friends, um, fellow collegiate players who are really good. Yeah. But they don't really have anything to show for it, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I mean, I'm 30 years old now. Um I don't know how much longer they can go about just doing mini tours. It's, yeah. it's really tough. I was going to ask you first thing. So, did you did they give you status on the Sunshine Tour? Did you have no, to qualify? I had to go to Q School as well. So, uh, similar there, but you know, eventually you've got to go to Q School, right? So, you've yeah, got sometime. to make it. Yeah, no one's going to hand you something. No one's going to hand you something. Yeah. So, um, but I did go to Q School and I got my card and um, I started playing professional golf, which is what I wanted to do as a kid. My mm-hmm. dream isn't so much playing on the PJ tour it's it's the fact that I want to play golf professionally first mm-hmm. and foremost where, wherever that might be um, and I went home and, and started out there yeah um, you, you make it sound like it was sort of a linear journey but you, you did play four years on the Sunshine Tour yeah. and I want to ask yeah. you about in 2014 I think it was um, I think you, you played 14 events you missed six cuts mm-hmm. you had one good finish mm-hmm. um, 
what was your mindset like at that point? You know, you're, you're on this, it's been two years on the Sunshine Tour. You, you would actually play two more. I mean, how close were you to making a drastic change? How did, how did you keep, because with all due respect to the Sunshine sure. Tour, you've mentioned this before, the purses aren't, aren't what they so are great. here. And nah. how did you financially keep it up? And then also mentally, how did you um, persist? Well, cost of living, you know, if we look at the finances, That's, isn't as what it is here. That's a good right? point. Um, obviously, you know, if you compare dollars to South African rands, the exchange rate is massive. Um, but cost of living isn't great back home in South Africa. So by making, I don't know, $10,000, that's a lot of money back home in South Africa. So you can get by. But, the, you know, if we look at my career up until that point, the I think the, the change came when I started seeing sports psychologists back home. Um, I thought my game was great. I was making mistakes, simple errors. Um, mental errors? Mental errors. Um, things that you should avoid. Things yeah. that I don't do now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started working with her. It was end of, I think, 2015. Um, uh, at the recommendation of myself. Just, just you, myself. You, like, you figured dude, I need something. I'm, I'm, I'm working my tail off. Um, my games, I believe it's good enough and I'm not playing great golf. Mm-hmm. Something's got to change. Um, and I think we all look at the best players in the world and everybody talks about they're so good mentally, but how many guys really take the steps to go take care of that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and It's so interesting because to me. Because you can learn that, right? You, you can. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. you can. It's like training your body. We're all in the gym, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're all working on getting stronger, Um we're all working on things daily, man. The most important thing out here between the guy who's going to finish first and second is what's in between your head. Mm-hmm. So um, I started addressing that, and I think we can see the progress. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting to me because you have this reputation now, and it's well-earned as, uh, I, I don't know if anyone's as smiley as Matt Kuchar, but you smile <laughs> you smile a lot on the golf course. You know, I don't you, even notice it. Uh, you, you do, though. You don't, you know, there's a lot of guys who, who you, you watch out there and um, – and the, the the cliche is you can't tell if this guy is three over par or three under sure. par. There are a lot of guys out there who, I'll tell you, I go to a lot of golf tournaments. I can see someone from 200 yards away, and I can, <laughs> within two or three strokes, he's, that's a four over posture. Sure, sure. You're not like that. Um, that's a good thing. I'm glad to hear that. That is a good thing. But that's changed. So did you have a, was it like you had a temper, or was it more just sort of getting down on yourself? Temper. Or or not being, fo- I'm saying, what was the issue that prompted you just to self-reflect um, and say, hey, I need to do something about this? Temper. Um being way too judgmental of yourself absolutely um judging myself um myself as a golfer on my score that i shot that day if Mm -hmm. i shot 62 best player in the world best player in the world let's go um if i shot 75 down to the dumps Mm -hmm. you know so it was massive roller coaster ride um and you just can't you can't be like that as a person you can't be like that as a golfer yeah um, no, that's that's interesting. You mentioned that I um I caddied in my first PJ Tour event in February for for Fitz for Matt Fitzpatrick. Yeah. He's like my closest friend, and I I, I you, know, you always hear about to- golfers talking about so mentally tired. You know, it's after a week. You know, you're being in contention. It's you you feel mentally fried. And I always thought that what does that mean? You know, you're playing golf out there. But I got a front row view to it. You know, he played really well the first three rounds and then had a terrible Sunday and. Mm-hmm. After the after the the round on Saturday, I'm thinking to myself, I had manic energy. I'm like, this is the best thing in the world. Yeah. Like he's gonna win. I, you know, this is for me. I love. And then on Sunday, you're you're just completely zapped. And I think it's it's really interesting what you mentioned about the mental roller coaster when you play 27 or whatever it is, 30 weeks mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. 
there's going to be ups and downs. For sure. And it's, I think, I, even within a round, there's ups and downs. You hit a good shot, you're, you're buzzing. You hit a terrible shot, you're kind of freaking out. Mm-hmm. It's such a huge part of the game, it seems for me. One of the things I've taken from being so close to it is you really can't get too high or too low. It's just it's just mentally exhausting. Absolutely. Um, you know, we try, we're trying to get the highs. Obviously, we all want the highs, right? You, but you're trying to kind of level everything off a little bit, trying not to get too low. Um, and especially in a round of golf, trying not to get too high because, look, there's four rounds to go mm-hmm. or three rounds to go or whatever it might be. Um so you're spot on. It's 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 it can be mentally draining if you're gonna go up and down like that. And that's where I was. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then the breakthrough comes in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you won two Challenge Tour events. I won one Challenge one, Tour event and one Sun Transfer event. How yeah. good? I mean, that must have felt. But also, I wanted to ask you. So I don't think did you win a tournament in college? I never won a college. So that was your first win in how long? Well, I won. I won Minnesota State Am. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't realize while I was that. a college. That's fine. Um. But I never won in college. I've I finished second a few times. Um, in the Big Ten, I think. Big Ten Championship. Yeah, yeah. I finished second a bunch of times. I finished second in New Mexico. Um, I guess what makes it tricky, I think, was the fact that it's also a shotgun start. So you don't know where the guy in front of you is at. You're saying in, in, in college. college. Yes. Right. Um, but regardless, yeah, I never won. Um and then one state out. Was it like riding a bike, or did you kind of have to reteach yourself? Okay, this is how I you was, play with the lead. I was livid in in college for not because I never won. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, that first win, man, it was it was awesome. It was awesome. I was, you know, the emotions were all over, all over the place during the round. I think the reason why I won probably was because I had better control over that kind of stuff than before. Mm-hmm. Because up until that point, that was about a year and a half since working with my, my sports psychologist. You're back still home. working with her? Still working with her, yeah. Um, things have changed. The, the, the things we work on have changed. I don't talk to her every day mm-hmm. anymore. Um, but yeah, I'm still working with her. Gotcha. Um, so then 2019, you, you have a great, a great year in 2018. 2019 um, seemed to be your coming out party, at least for American audiences. Sure, sure. Um, and it kind of happened at Bethpage, I think. Yeah. You were playing really well coming in. I think you had a couple top top fives going right. in. But, you know, that week you were you were up there basically the whole week. How big was – I mean, obviously you'd had some great finishes, but mm-hmm. that's a different a different level and a different stage. Sure, sure. How big was that week uh, for your confidence and just massive. for your progression as a golfer? And uh, what do you remember about Bethpage? Because I, I can't imagine courses <laughs> were that difficult on the Sunshine Tour. I remember getting there – I think I was there the Sunday. I, I got there early. Um I think at that point was the second major that I'm playing in. So I got there early. I think you played in the open before I played that. Played in the open Which, the, and had a good finish there as well. Seat. Yeah, I was, I was I was leading at one point, I think. Yeah. Or in contention think, at least. Finished like 18th or 19th and then ended up finishing, you know, top 20. So but yeah, I got to Bethpage early and I played it the first day and I was like, "Whoa." <laughs> you know, I think we all we all have I live sick. in the New York area and I think uh the first time anyone plays Beth Page they're like, "Okay. Yeah. I'm in for a, a I'm in for breath. a treat here." Um and but it was incredible in the crowds. I don't think I'll ever experience anything like that again. Um to give you an example, I remember it was kind of 15, 16, 17. They're all kind of right there in this corner. 17 was rowdy, the par three. And then, so I'm playing those holes. And then on 16, I have this unbelievable up and down from the bunker. And people are going nuts. <laughs> and then on 17, I hit it to 20 foot and I three putt. And I get booed off the green. <laughs> First time getting booed on a golf course? Yeah. And, and I look at my caddy, Alex, and I go, 
dude, this is a cool moment. Yeah. Remember this because it's no, never going to happen again. <laughs> so I don't really care that I was being booed. It was just, I mean, obviously I would have loved to, to not three-putt, but um, yeah, to get booed on a golf course, it was, it, was, it was a fun moment. Yeah. No, it seems the, the American crowds can be can be different, yeah. I, I, I imagine. And, and I, I wanted to ask you, apart from just playing in the U.S. versus playing in Europe and maybe the, the fields being different, what is different about playing over here? And you know, I've spoken to a couple guys who have said don't uh, don't underestimate the comfort factor, right. and and being comfortable in the U.S. and being comfortable playing golf in the U.S. Not just on the golf course, but with your surroundings mm-hmm. and culturally. A little bit different for you, given that you grew up playing in Minnesota. But what's different about a PGA Tour event than a European Tour event, or or maybe just it's a major, you know? And ha- did it take you any time to to get comfortable uh, with yourself playing over here? Um. Yes, I think I think the point you make is a really good one. The comfortability factor is massive. Um, you know, you put you put someone on in conditions that they're not used to, on on grass that they're not used to. Um, you give them food they don't like. Go to China, um, and and guys don't like it. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to the golf course, going and, back to the hotel, going and, to the golf yeah, course. Yeah, and 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 you see it in in the golf they play. Um, so that, that does play a role. Um, luckily I've spent a lot of time in the U S. Um, you're comfortable here. I'm comfortable. Um, just, you know, a a big thing why I really like that I, that I came to the U S for college was I had to get away from home. I was too comfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. and when you're in the lead on Sunday, um, man, it's, some people don't enjoy that. It's uncomfortable. There's a lot of nerves. Um, there's things on the line. You want to win. Um, there's a million people watching. All of that. There's a know. million dollars you're playing for. Right. Um, all of those things don't consciously. You don't consciously think about it. But uh-huh. that's why you get nervous, right? Um, and if you're not used to that, you're probably not going to play well. So, being comfortable is is key. But to to answer your question, what's the difference? I don't know. Um, there's a golf course and I've got a, I've got a job to do. Um, and that job is to go hit that first fairway and, mm-hmm. and hit that green and go make that putt for birdie. Um, that's how I approach every golf tournament. That's how I approach it in Europe. Um, that's how I approach it here. Mm-hmm. Um, the money we play for here is more. I think, um, that's, that's at least yeah. why, why I'm looking forward to playing. Here. <laughs> yeah, totally. One of the reasons 100%. I'm not shy away from that. It's my career. Mm-hmm. Um, the travel here is easier. My, my wife's American. I've got family here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to be here. Um, but if you strip it down, at, at the end of the day, there's a golf course. And, yeah. And that's your challenge. And right? of course, the reason I'm, I'm asking that sort of question, it's been a it's been a real hot topic of discussion of with course. Paul Azinger's with, with sure. his comments. I think it's um, really funny that Terrell Hatton then went on to win the next week. Of course, week, so. of course. And and not just that Terrell Hatton won the next week. It seemed like everybody at the top of the leaderboard was not American. Yeah. Uh, almost like they stuck it to him. But... No, I've spoken to a couple guys who have said, look, it, it's not so much what he said, it's how he said it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know Paul at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw the, the, the comment on, on social media channels and whatnot. Um, I found it amusing. Um, for me, you know, having played all around the world, I can promise you that there's good players wherever you're going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, do we all get to play for $15 million at the Players' Championship? No. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think at the end of the day, that plays a major role. Um, and then you've also got the best players in the world here. Um, so, but if you, if, if, it's, if it's a normal day and you have one of those guys from a soundtrack to a teed up here, outside of competition, they're going to do pretty well. Mm-hmm. So the challenge is being able to take that same mindset and put it in tournament golf, yeah. right? Um, to be able to cancel all the noise, cancel out the fact that it's the players, that there's people watching on 17, people shouting, um, everything that's on, you know, at stake. Mm-hmm. That's just up here. That's all mental. Yeah, um, it really is all mental, right? Because mm-hmm. we've, I mean, I know guys who can shoot under par with their eyes closed exactly. when it's not in a tournament. I can do it sometimes. Exactly. And then the minute, it's, the it's, minute you put the title of the put, Minnesota State Open, for example. It's not even even that extreme. The minute you give them a scorecard and you yep. say, look, you have to sign this at the end of the day. Yep. And you got to write down your score. And, yep. and it, everything changes. That ties back in with the fact with how important that, that mental aspect of the game is. Hmm. So. so I want to ask you about your first win. You beat Fitz that week. And I, I don't know if you remember that. He, <laughs> I just he, found out he's a good friend. He so. hit the pin. Sorry uh, about that. No, no, no. But uh, that must have felt pretty pretty fantastic. I, I remember, I think you, you made a couple putts down the stretch. I did. I did. That I must, had a lot of putts that day. Yeah, it must have felt pretty good finally checking that box. Absolutely. Um, you know, the day, the round started kind of slow. And then I made it sort of a 12 or 15 foot on, on I think it was number three, um, the par five. Um, and it just took off from there. I made a bomb on, on five, the par three. Um, and I turned, I made a nice putt on nine. I turned in four under. Um, at that point, all Alex, my caddy, kept telling me, dude, keep your foot on the gas. Keep, mm-hmm. keep going. Keep playing. Um, honestly, I did not look at a leaderboard up until that point. Um, until, thought, until the turn. Yeah, I thought I was flying. Um, not even until the turn. I first looked at the leaderboard. I kind of avoided them um, on 16. Um, wow. Yeah, on 16. That's interesting because most guys will say, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm looking. I want to know where I am. I want to know what I have to do. Yeah, and I get that. But I was four under through the turn. I thought I was flying. And yeah. Nobody's going to catch me. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, here's Fitzy creeping. You yeah. Know? So, um, yeah, I remember having like a three-shot lead with, with three to play and uh, three putts at 17. Um, it was a good second putt too. Um, and I got on the tee and I looked at my caddy. I'm like, okay, you know, what do I got to do? He's like, dude, you got to birdie it. You got to go. I first thought he was kidding because um, the whole day it'd been like, hey, keep your foot on the gas, you know? Yeah. And I was like, okay, he just wants me to go make a birdie and, and smash the field by two or three or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're tied. You got to go make a birdie. Yeah. So, um, yeah, hit a hit a nice little 15 footer there to get it done. So I was I was extremely happy. Right, and then uh, you, you parlay the success into obviously a fantastic week in Mexico. Yeah. Um. Oh, I got jo- I, I see joggers on my. We've gone 23 minutes and we haven't you talked haven't about even joggers. The joggers. Do I get some credit for that? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, do you wear them off the course? Um. Yeah, I do. Um, I like them. I wear them too. There you go. Good man. <laughs> um. People either love them or hate them. I think Grayson's done a great job with them. When when they sent them to me, I was pretty pumped. Did you ask for them, or they just sort no, of said, "Hey, we got these that were picking like, up." Grayson was like, "Hey, we've got these. Um, do you want to try them out?" I was like, "Absolutely." Yeah. So, um, I've been wearing them since. And yeah. I really like them. You'll, we, see, you'll we, see them over the weekend. Nice, nice. We've had a uh, we had some debates in our office recently about hoodies on the golf course. Yeah. The old there seems to be a pretty clear generational divide where the older guys sure. say, okay, this isn't okay. And I wear a hoodie or not a hoodie, but a zip up or something sure. every time I play and I just I don't see the issue with it. I don't see the issue and I, and I think Who cares? Like I think it's changing. Um 
uh, Brooks Kepka made a comment the other day about not liking the country club vibe. I'm, I'm not maybe as... Um, I don't really care as much as he does. Yeah. Um, uh, the GQ about, interview where he said yeah, yeah, it's so stuffy. And, mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, golf is golf, and I like the tradition quite a lot. Um, however, man, what's wrong with a pair of joggers? I think they look classy. I think they look cool. It's a little different because you can see my ankle, but... Get over it. You're going to see it. <laughs> yeah. so. It's an ankle. You, everyone has Get one. A, exactly. Sorry uh, I'm not wearing the 90s khakis. Pleated. With, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, Argyle so. sweater. Right. Um, so I, I know you're, you're a guitar enthusiast. Yes. When did that happen? And is that something that kind of keeps your mind off golf on the road? Or Exactly. Um, started playing when I was 14. So a long time ago now. Um, self-taught or did you have lessons or? I had lessons for about a month and then it's not very many lessons no the old guy unfortunately couldn't come into town anymore and um, I was like okay cool so then self-taught from there so pretty much self-taught um, never really got to the theory side of things but uh, so you don't read music or I can't read music my sister can she got piano lessons and whatnot. Um but it's amazing. You can learn to play an instrument without yeah. me. My, my roommate uh, in New York learned how to, I don't know if it's to play. The, he can play songs on the, sure. on the piano without sure. uh, YouTube tutorials and stuff like that. I've, I had a teammate that did the same thing, and yeah. he's really freaking good. And, and the thing is, you know, after a while, you start seeing the patterns. You, you obviously, are, you do your own little bit of research. You understand the guitars, different keys. Um or similar to a piano, and, and once you do it long enough, you figure it out. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, last question. We, we do this with with some other guys that we have on the podcast. Sweet. So I'm going to ask you uh, if you could have one aspect of other players. So we're going to start with, with the driver. If you could drive the ball like one other PGA Tour player, who are you picking? Or it doesn't have to be a PGA Tour player. It could also be someone on that tour. Sure. That uh, what, what is it I called? I think the it's, European tour. Oh, the European tour. Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> Sorry, just sometimes you know, if it's not the PGA tour, I'd, um, I it doesn't I, exist. Does I think it? I'm a good driver of the ball, but um, if I had to, if I could copy someone, it'd be Rory. I think that's a yeah. pretty popular answer. I mean, yeah, he's, he's obviously a massive strength of his. So. Yeah, uh, irons, long irons. Oh man, myself, love it. Yeah, confident yeah. guy. Yeah, absolutely. How about uh, wedges? Someone you've watched that's like. Fitzy. Fitzy. Yeah, Phenomenal wedge player. Good, really good tempo. His, his yeah. uh, distance control is yeah. fantastic. But he didn't hit it those wedges as good as you'd like at AT&T. Nah. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, short game. Chipping. Flop shots. Bunkers. Um, Phil comes to mind. Have Just, you played with Phil? I played with him at HSBC in China last year. In, um, in, were you paired together or yeah, on the weekend? Paired together. Oh, yeah, paired cool. together. Um, final day. Um yeah, he hit one flop shot. He was on the fringe on the green, but there was a big slope ahead of him and the kind of the rough kind of cut in and he took the 64 degree or whatever it is and opened it up and You're hit this massive flop and I was just like, dude, that's that's impressive. That's that's that badass. Cool. That's what he does. Yeah. Have you played with Tiger? I've never played with Tiger. I'm looking forward to that though. Gotcha. Yeah. Um putter. Me, <laughs> this guy, yeah. irons and putter, yeah. and you mentioned yourself with the driver. I yeah. think you might win this week. Well, Feeling good about your game. I like my game. <laughs> That's uh, fair you enough. Have to, right? And um, uh, I know you love your mental game, but the last one is if you could take someone else's uh, mentality or, or the way they approach things. Savvy, savvy. Yeah. Did you have any experience? Never. Um, but I've seen him a ton. Um, and for the way he hit it, or, or I should say, the direction he hit it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, kind of like Phil, right? He used to spray it both ways yep. and kind of... And, and, and to still go out and win, um, that, that just speaks for, for what he had upstairs, that, that absolute self-belief, um, finding a way to, to get it done. Um, I admire that. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Eric, I want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, we wish you nothing but Absolutely. the best, the best of luck so this much. week. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks again. Thanks for having me. Cool. Cheers. All right. Thanks again to Eric Van Royen for joining us six weeks ago. <laughs> it's good to get it out there. But uh, again, he's a very uh, interesting character and uh, hopefully we'll see more of him soon at some point. All right. We had a fun piece on the site this past week. Shane Ryan, who does a lot of fun pieces, kind of dove into this whole golf terms that are kind of taboo or, or it's, it's a this or that thing. Um, and I thought he did a great job with it as always. And so I wanted to ask you guys about some of these terms. Now, he did seven and uh, let's start with the first one and it's whether golf is a verb or not. And that mm-hmm. is a big thing out there. It's crazy. And again, it was fun to like, here these old debates that we used to get so caught up in and now we're, we're like eh, whatever who cares yeah. we're worried about the world ending but uh anyway your thoughts on golf as a verb sam well, I, I, well go ahead well I, I would say is that of of shane's list like there's a bunch of things that people get their panties in a twist about yeah. and i don't really care like you know shane mentions albatross which is double eagle the, the golf versus golfing thing is a stopper for me. So, for instance, <laughs> like, I, I, I can't deal and to, to the extent where, you know, we all three of us get a lot of um, emails from PR people and things like that. If the PR says, uh, dear Sam, ever go golfing with your friends, like, delete, you know, it's just like, a, <laughs> it just clangs, uh, it clangs to me. And again, I sound like a golf snob when I say that because I'd rather you say, I'm going golfing as long as you actually are playing golf yeah. uh, and not say nothing at all. But it's just one of those things that it just, it just feels like it's, it's not the, uh, the intended use of the word. Yeah. I'm with Sam, but I don't want to be a hypocrite. I love the phrase golfing your ball. Like if you say yes. you're playing yeah, well, you're, that's like, different, you're, though. Like, wow. you're like, he's golfing his ball. How he is, is, that, golfing his How is ball. that different? That's golf as a verb. Cause that's, that's, it's within the context of that phrase. It like stands on its own. That's an idiot. Catching me? It's not a verb. It's it's part of the idiomatic yeah. phrase. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I love that phrase. He was really golfing his ball that day. That is yeah. such a good phrase. It's a great point, Dan. I, I, you know, Shane points out that in the uh, whatever Oxford or Mer- one of the dictionaries, it is listed as a verb. So I have no problem with it, honestly. And John Huggin, who is a stickler over everything, including I think every other thing on this list actually has no problem with it being used as a verb. So to me, I, I let that If Puggin has no problem with it, I don't think any of us are allowed to have Exactly. Now, okay. now, something he does have a huge problem with, and he talks about it every week, no matter what's going on in the world, uh, is this pin placement versus hole location. And to me, they're interchangeable, especially mm-hmm. if you're writing a story about these hole placements or pin, which we've all had to do. And it's nice to kind of put in a different phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, just saying the same thing over and over again. He is so against hole location, I guess because the whole hole is called the hole. I really don't get it. He, he thinks it has to be pin placement or you're basically an idiot if you say anything else. So uh, to me, I like it all. I think it's, it's amazing thing about the whole location is, is the USGA are real sticklers about using whole location. Over they, exactly. They yeah. mandate that you use whole. Yes. And I remember, I think that's what I remember doing a piece like 15 years ago before the U S open uh, with Mike Davis about how they come up with the whole locations. Yeah. And now 
you know, John Huggin all this time later is saying that you shouldn't be saying that. Yeah, so I, I, I can't root for either side in this argument because I find the sort of insistence on whole location reprehensible, but I right. also find Huggins' insistence on, on uh, pin placement also difficult to stomach. So, right. Yeah. But that means that should just show you that you should be able to say either one. Well, I, and I thought you were going to talk about the biggest one, of course, or one of the biggest ones is British Open versus Open. Well, he, that's another one he's on. Yeah, like, well, okay, well, so let's get to that one. Well, okay, so... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, sir. Well, I was going to say is, I mean, I'm the oldest of the three of us. So when I grew up, no one ever used, and again, I grew up in the United States, no one ever called it the Open Championship. It was oh. always the British Open. Like the, British, the Open Championship was something that um, I became aware of probably when I was, you know, like over the last 15 years, let's say. Okay. And everyone said that, you know, that's, that's not me being a golf purist and that's not the truest, you know, meaning of the word. And obviously over there, they call it the Open Championship. However, remember we did this whole investigation you look at video of pro trophy presentations, Claret right. Jug presentations yep. in the 1930s. Yep. And they say, congratulations. And it was, it was the, you know, the Duke of what, whatever yep. presenting the Claret Jug saying, congratulations on winning the British open championship. Exactly. Right. So mic drop. And there was, I saw a video on Twitter this week that was Jack Nicholas in 1975. And there was another British guy with oh. a super proper accent saying, congratulations on your third British open or whatever. British it was. open. Right. And like, I've heard more recently, uh, Nick Faldo referred to it as the British Open. He's someone who won it three times. Uh, you know, if he's calling it the British Open and he's from Britain, uh, to me, I think it's ridiculous. I think obviously the reason why American fans call it that or golf fans in general is to distinguish it. Not, it's not we're degrading it at all by, I mean, you know, it, it, it's... Yeah. It's not like the U.S. Open is the Open and the exactly. British Open. Right. The We're British not going to the different things. So there's a U.S. Open and a British Open. And exactly. also, any anytime you read a story from from Europe about golf, they refer to the PGA as the U.S. PGA. That's also true. That's a really good point. All of them to this day, even all the, players, the U.S. PGA. Because there's, there's some a of them say the U, some of them say the U.S. Masters. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a European Masters and a British Masters, and I don't care. Um, bother me. One, one, a couple, one other one that was in here that I was surprised. Oh, another big hugging one is alternate shot versus four foursomes. He hates the term alternate shot, and I'm sorry, you alternate shots. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. four, foursomes requires an additional explanation. Yeah. Whereas alternate shot is pretty freaking self-explanatory. Exactly. And so, in the in the spirit of journalism, which is trying to make complex ideas very digestible right I feel like alternate shot is the one there and the same with and chain points the same with force uh four ball versus better ball or best ball i mean four right. ball again if you follow golf you get it but when people want to call it best ball i have no problem with that because i think we all get what mm -hmm. they're talking about um i was surprised that uh bunker or sand trap even made it in here why why again i if you're writing a story don't you want more terms at your disposal to be able to to use to describe yeah something? i think from a, I, i'm gonna i think from an architectural standpoint they oh. they do not like the phrase sand trap because a bunk i could be wrong about that but I'm, okay. I, my my understanding is sand trap is a misleading phrase albatross versus double eagle is stupid i think we all agree that sorry i think we all agree double eagle is dumb Right, albatross. Should well, be. it's not technically accurate. Right, so not that's accurate. why. But who cares? I mean, really, who cares? Okay, fine. And then what was the one other one? Uh, oh, the all square thing is so bizarre. And the the new rules that the USGA puts out, they they make up new language, not make up new language. They take away all square, and now it's mm -hmm. tied. I like all squared. It's so it's like so different. Yeah. 
All right. I, got, again. Yeah. Right, you wanted to get into it. You wanted me to take I, the other side of that. I'm, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired. All right. All right. One last yeah. thing because, um, you know, last week we had a very cool um, Masters Sunday with the Tiger Nance interview and rewatching Tiger. This Sunday, it felt again like we were all watching sports because of this last, the last dance documentary that comes out. Uh, with uh, Michael Jordan and the Bulls and everything else. And Sam, I know you you were watching in your house. I know. First of all, Dan, do you even know who Michael Jordan is? You're, you're pretty young. He played basketball, <laughs> right? <laughs> Michael oh. Jordan's really good friends with Justin Thomas. Oh, That's the way to say it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I'm a wizard. You might have seen him at a Ryder Cup. Yeah. yeah. Oh, with the cigar, with the big cigar, that guy. Yeah. With the big cigar. That's right. That's him. Um, First of all, the first two episodes were very good. I didn't think they were amazing, but they were very good. I'm excited for the rest of the show. I, th- I hope there's more kind of this hidden video versus backstories on people because I think a lot of us know that stuff more. But anyway, a couple great golf stories. Um, Michael Jordan apparently dropped the famous 63 points on the Celtics after losing to Danny Ainge on the golf course the day before. That was kind of his revenge. And then I like the fact that Scottie Pippen said, that Michael bought him a set of clubs as a rookie. And the interviewer goes, oh, wow, that's really nice. He bought a rookie set of clubs. And he goes, yeah, he bought them for me because he tried to lure me in so he could take all my money on the course. So yeah. I thought that was that was pretty awesome. I had a question. The Danny H yeah. thing was amazing. They showed footage of Michael playing golf. They, yeah. That wasn't – I don't think that was actually from that day of him playing with Danny H. Do you think? I don't think so. Yeah. I that mean, too, what were the odds that, that there was a film crew there? Yeah. Yeah, but I loved the, the some of the footage was great. Him bending over and putting, he had the weirdest. I don't know if he was just messing around or whatever. Uh, and Sam, how, how good is Michael Jordan at golf? Because I've read that he was like a one handicap at one point, but I feel like he shot like eighty eight in that mm-hmm. open challenge. Yeah, well, uh, I, I mean, the, the two are not mutually exclusive. He he did shoot right like enough. I don't even know if he shot eighty. I think he shot even higher. I covered that uh, when he played in that. No, he no, definitely he struggled. Okay. He definitely struggled. So I think he's a he's a you know a high single digit is my my guess right now. Although he says he plays to I think you're right, Dan, that he right, he more would say he played to like a a one or two type level, but I think he's probably more like a six. Um so I will say loose rules with scoring too. I feel like he's always playing for thousands of dollars. So probably somehow apparently he cleans up with the in the gambling circuits, or at least that oh that's the rumor. So I don't I don't know. Maybe he's he was so nervous in that U.S. Open challenge. And right. he said it. He's like, I'm so glad it's over. I've never been so nervous. And this is Michael Jordan who's played right. in, you know, all these amazing competitions and national championship games and says, like, I've never been so nervous standing over that ball on the first day. Yeah, I, I saw a Michael Jordan story uh, that Jeremy Roenick told about they were drinking beers all day yeah. and they played a, a morning round and Jordan had a game in the afternoon. And then Roenick like beat him for a few thousand bucks and then Jordan's like, no, we're playing again. They pick up a full case of Coors Light and a bunch of ice they drink a, a, all day all afternoon they play again and then Ronick says all that money that I just took off you I'm going to put on Cleveland tonight because you're going to be drunk and sluggish and then Jordan says I'll bet you that I drop over 40 and we win by over 20 and apparently he did that I don't know how that flies I mean Pete Rose does he have an I, I don't, I'm just connecting the dots here but I mean, there's probably never been a bigger savage. If I saw Michael Jordan on the golf course, like I would run the other way. I just yes. feel like no, nothing good is coming of that for me. 
Exactly. Yeah. He's uh he's an intimidating dude when he's uh, playing for money, I would imagine. That is an amazing story. And it, it shows you just what a freak he was, obviously. I mean, people say he hardly slept and uh, you know, he would, or he'd stay up the night before big games, not and and, and just show up and be fine and, and score 40 points or whatever. Uh, Sam, you have a personal connection with the doc, as you pointed out. Now I, I think I got excited. You said you got a ride to uh uh, Rangers practice, and I I thought no, you were yeah. talking about Charles Oakley giving you a ride. <laughs> makes a great appearance in the doc, but it's not Charles Oakley. Who 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 do you know? In the no, doc? I was just saying that uh, Rod Thorne, who's the GM who drafted Michael Jordan, is a is an an old family friend. We still get a Christmas card from every year. He's a great guy, but I think he still plays a lot of golf too. So, but um, that was my one personal connection to it. And did your kids like it? Did they stay? Yeah, up? I loved it. I mean, it was amazing. It was like it was a, it was the focal point <laughs> of our Sunday for kids. For kids your age, uh, your your kids' age, I think it it would have been amazing last night. Like again, I thought it was very good. But like for someone who's that young, um, I can imagine it just being like mind blowing. Like how good Jordan was, how big of a star he was. Yeah, he was the people really legitimately wondered if the NBA would continue after he left. I mean, not continue, but you know, I mean, they mm-hmm. they just how are we ever gonna? find a replacement for why, this. why are you holding an egg whisk by the way i don't know it's a it's a kid's egg <laughs> this um, is Ricky from home. Here, i got a whole i got a whole cake here oh, the whole cake yeah this is quite a situation here but yeah i mean people can't under i mean i know people have wondered the same thing about golf after tiger but it was the same with jordan it was like how couldn't they ever how can the nba ever replace this guy that's how big he was i mean he was bigger than the sport I mean, and, even for guys my age, it's like I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, I've always thought LeBron was the GOAT, LeBron was the GOAT, and then things like last night changed their mind. So even my age, I was born in 94, so when he won his last championship, I was like, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't my time period. And so people like me were 25 years old. There's a huge section of sports fans who never really got to see right. Michael anywhere near his heyday and things right. like last night show them. Well, and apparently that's part of the reason for the timing of this. He, he got into talks about this documentary after LeBron knocked off the Warriors. And people oh, is that right? Said, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, they literally signed the contractors, the green light at the day of their parade or something exactly. like that. Exactly. So he's a sick guy. I mean, he's yeah. a sick competitor. I, I, you got to respect it. But Well, just to bring it back to golf for one second, I, I wonder that that's the one thing about, about Michael, as they say, how, what a cutthroat competitor, ruthless, yes. and you know, very, very much like a guy who builds grudges and, and holds on to them. Um, they make a lot of comparisons between he and Tiger. I don't think Tiger has that siding i'm certainly tiger very much a, uh, a competitor but to that extent i don't think so it's really? hard, i don't hard think so like very similar it's hard yeah, but, to be that competitive in golf because you can't really talk trash you can't really you know guard someone one-on-one you can do all these little things but yeah. the most savage thing you can do in golf is like stand on the green when someone's chipping up well and the other thing is and i've said this before and obviously you're gonna roll your eyes at this but but like you are forced to learn how to lose so much more in golf you know, yes. you lose far more than you win in golf. And it's just like Michael Jordan couldn't tolerate it at any part of his being. Whereas obviously, you know, Tiger Woods, even at the height of his dominance was still, was still losing more than he was winning. Losing. If we, if we, yeah. If yeah. We define losing is right. not winning the golf tournament. Then yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I think they're pretty similar in, in the, the work ethic and, and obviously in the competitiveness um, and you hear about Tiger doing the same thing, waking up in the middle of the night and going to the gym and working out. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, that, that Jordan did. So, uh, but I think they're pretty, pretty similar. And they were obviously pretty good friends at one point too, although mm-hmm. it seems like they, they kind of cooled off there. But, um, 
Uh, anyway, it's very good. It, it was exciting to watch something. I think as a as a whole, people on Twitter were going nuts. Uh, again, as if it was live, even though we're talking about something that's over 20 years ago, but uh, should be good. Should be a few more weeks of that. Um, anyway, it was fun. Oh, and there, there actually is live golf this week. The Outlaw Tour is going to periscope a few uh, <laughs> rounds. Yeah, so if you want to tune in. Are you uh, on the Outlaw Tour PR staff now? <laughs> I might. <laughs> they got a lot of good stuff going on yeah. there. Uh, all right, guys, it was fun. Thanks again to Eric Van Royen for joining us. Thanks to our producer, as always, Greg Gottfried. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already and check back next week to see who our guest is.